happened some time ago that when restrictions were lifted, having a praise and worship night where we just sing. I think we need to talk this week because I think it's coming. So uh, turn with me if you would, open with me if you would to Colossians chapter 1. We will let God's word speak first as we turn now to this sermon and then I will pray. Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Lord, we thank you for your word that instructs us, encourages us, corrects us, and points us to your glory. And Lord, as we turn now to your word, we want to pause and pray and ask your favor on this time, ask you to give us eyes to understand, give us hearts to, uh, soft hearts willing to obey. Lord, I pray that uh, you would give us some clarity this morning on where we stand with you, on what we are to pursue, on where we are spiritually, and Lord, that you would draw us nearer to you, that you would draw us into greater devotion towards you. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be a church this morning that is committed and devoted to serving, to serving the world we live in, to serving you, to serving the church. Lord, ultimately, it's all service to you. We serve the church as an act of serving to you. We serve other believers as an act of serving you. We serve the world that we live in as an act of serving you. And so, Lord, make us servants. Make us willing servants, willing to even be treated like servants. Lord, we pray this morning also for a moment, church. We ask that you would give them gospel clarity and us as well faithfulness to the gospel, trust in your word and your spirit and the gospel to do the work that you have empowered it to do. Lord, we know and confess that it is the gospel that is the power of salvation. It is not our efforts. It is not our work. It is not anything that is the power of salvation to those who believe except the gospel. And so may we have great confidence and trust in that. Lord, we pray this morning for Sandy and Sue Nafziger as they... Um, have expressed some praises and requests with, to, to sh or shared with us that we might uh, pray on their behalf. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for uh, the blessing of family that they get to experience. And as they're near to uh, their family and in, in their home there in Vegas, we thank you that they get to enjoy children and grandchildren. Uh, Lord, we think of their grandson, Luke, who will be having surgery coming up. We ask for successful surgery for him and a quick recovery. Uh, Lord, we thank you that both Sandy and Sue have been experiencing better health lately, and we had been praying for that, and there had been some difficulties, and that you have uh, brought them into better health. We thank you for that uh, faithfulness to them in that way, Lord. And as they're going to be going to Germany soon and are making preparations, Lord, we pray that you would help them to um, just get in, in order whatever they need to here and there, and that their time there might be uh, a faithful time of ministry, and that you might use it as a fruitful time of ministry as well. Lord, give us a great joy and delight uh, and submission and obedience to your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember uh, a time, I think it was in high school, the first time I heard a very churchy saying uh, about those who seem to be most 
delighted in God, most focused on eternal things. I heard somebody say of another church member once that they were so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. I think what Paul tells us here in Colossians and in various other places in scripture is that it is those who are the most heavenly minded who are the most earthly good. And Colossians, as a book, takes a monumental shift here at ch- in chapter 3. Paul very clearly uh, shifts from telling us what is true, chapters 1 and 2 being mostly what we call exposition, the teaching of, of truth. Uh, Paul is conveying to us facts and truths about who Christ is and what he has done and who we are and who we were and who Christ has made us to be. And he is now shifting gears to say all that that I have taught you now I want you to live in light of all of those things this can be seen in Paul's use of the imperative mood an imperative mood is a is a verb that's a command they're really really easy to spot in English by the way Uh, and as you're reading your Bible if you're looking for these you can pick up on them very easily what we simply do if we want to Uh, make something an imperative is we drop the subject of the sentence. We just assume it. So if I say, you go to church, that could just be simply a statement of fact. Here you are, here I am, I can see you, and you go to church. It's, It's just something that's true. However, if I remove you, if I if I assume the subject instead of clarifying it, listen to how different it feels. Go to church. It becomes a command. It becomes an imperative. And so as you read scripture, when you see the authors drop that subject, uh, you you would find that that's just a, it's a command. It's not an indicative. It's not stating a fact. It's an imperative. It's telling you to do something. And we can see a, a big shift in Paul just as we see the change here in the imperative mood. In chapters one and two, there are four imperatives. And most of them have to do with not being taken captive by false teachers. And so in chapter 2, verse 6, it's all right there in chapter 2, it's walk in Christ. In 2.8, it's see to it that no one takes you captive. In 2.16, it's let no one pass judgment on you. And in 2.18, it's let no one disqualify you. However, uh, in chapters 3 and 4, Paul uses 25 imperatives. He shifts to give us 25 commands. He is telling us what to do and how to live based upon everything that he has told us before. And I thought about just kind of going through uh, chapters 1 and 2 and kind of lining out the big idea of all of the sermons just very, very quickly, but leave it to J. Vernon McGee to say something far better and more concise than I could have. And so listen to his synopsis of chapters 1 and 2, and then where we are going in chapter 3. McGee says this. He says, We have seen the preeminence of Christ in chapters 1 and 2. We have seen him as he is, a member of the Trinity. He is very man of very man, but he is very God of very God. He is preeminent in creation because he is the creator. He is preeminent in the church because he is the one who gave himself for the church. 
And now we will come to the place where Paul will insist that he must be made preeminent in our lives. We've seen how he is preeminent as God, as man, in the church, over all things. But now in chapters 3 and 4, Paul zooms into our individual lives and says, here is how Christ is preeminent in our lives. And the, the authors of Scripture are obsessed, and I don't think that's a wrong word for us to use, with seeing him as worthy of everything. Why? Well, I was thinking, and part of my prayer this morning was based on this, one of the attributes of God that you probably don't hear of very often is his aseity. Aseity. Aseity means that God needs nothing. You and I need a lot. We need to be given life. We need breath. We need food. We need water. We need relationships. God has made us incredibly needy. And he has built reminders into our lives to remind us of just how needy we are. Why do you think it is we sleep? I think it's so that while we're knocked out unconscious for eight hours a night, we can be reminded every single day of our lives that even when we don't see it, he's working. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He never rests. He never takes a day off. And thank God for that, because if God even took one day off, we'd all lose our salvation. That's the reality of it. But he never stops working. He needs nothing. He didn't create us out of neediness. He didn't redeem us out of neediness. He did so out of his character. He didn't love us because we were worthy of his, his affection, he loved us when we were not worthy of his affection. Here he creates mankind from the dust. And in a significant act of rebellion, we have all chosen to sin, to play the role of God, to define our lives and ourselves and what's good and bad for ourselves. I want to say that again. We have all chosen to define ourselves for ourselves. It would be a mistake for the church to look at the world and say, oh, look at the sins of the world. Look how the world is trying to self-define. We do it all the time. Every time we sin, we're defining for ourselves what is good and what is evil. And as Thomas Watson said, I think God is far more offended by the sins of the church than by the sins of the world. We know better. We ought to know better. We have trusted in Christ. We have his word. I think God is far more bothered by our sins than the world's. And yet, because of the great love with which he loved us, he became one of us and lived perfectly according to the law like you and I cannot and died in our place so that through faith, his death can become our death and his life our life. We've seen that repeatedly throughout Colossians, and it's going to be baked into this text today. It is the foundation of this text. And so what we find is that Christ becoming one of us, living perfectly, being subjected to the experience of humanity as though he had sinned. He never sinned. But he didn't subject himself to a life lived like Adam and Eve lived in the garden. 
No, his experience was that of sinful man. And so he, he went through all of the difficulties that we go through. He suffered all of the, the, the sufferings that we go through. And yet he did it without sin. And then when he owed no debt of death, he gave his life for us to redeem us, to draw us back to God, to, to cancel the record of our debt by nailing it to the cross. Can you imagine how worthy he is of all of our devotion, all of our lives, all of our affection? He is worthy. That puts the passage in its larger context of the book of Ephesians, or Colossians, I mean, excuse me, but there is also a more immediate context. For the past several weeks since Dwayne Wilton preached, we have seen over and over that Paul is calling us not to fall victim to worldly philosophy, to self and man-made religion to asceticism, to legalism, to all of these things done in the flesh that really are useless in returning us to God and stopping the flesh. And here, Paul switches gears, reminds us of our past and our present and our future, and calls us to set our minds on heaven as a means of combating our tendency to be drawn out and to follow that which is false or that which is man-made or that which tries to earn God's affection. And so if we want to be, if we want to avoid being tricked by worldly philosophies, then we must focus on Christ. And though our outline today is going to deny this a little bit, uh, we're going to kind of be the subject of each of the points in, in the outline this morning. This section, these four verses are really all about Christ. There are five explicit references to Jesus in these four verses. And so it is really all about Jesus. What I want to see this morning, though, is three ways believers are with Christ. Because if you notice, let's look at the text again. We see that three times here in the text. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at his right hand. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so I want us to see this morning the three ways that believers are with Christ. Christ. And Paul very distinctly uses past, present, and future tense verbs to, to show us that. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to see our past with Christ, our present with Christ, and our future with Christ. So number one on your outline is past, raised with Christ. Paul's opening statement here is that we have been raised with Christ. Notice once again this if statement. If, if once again here does not imply a question, it implies since. We use if to, to pose a possibility, but then we use if also in a sense to, uh, to communicate certainty. The example I used previously in Colossians is if Jennifer told me that she's going to go to the grocery store, I might say, if you drive by a Starbucks, then get me a coffee. 
It's, it's not going to be, uh, it, it's not certain. She may or may not. But if she says, I'm going to Starbucks, and then I say, well, if you're going to Starbucks, then get me a coffee. It's not a question. It's certainty. It means more like since. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Well, why, if Paul means since, does he not simply say since here? And the answer is because Paul does not assume that everyone who reads this, and neither should we assume that everyone in this room has been raised with Christ. If you have trusted Christ, if you've trusted his righteousness, if you've trusted his resurrection, if you have repented of your sin and turned to Christ, if your affections are more for Christ than for sin, more for Christ than for the world, then this is a since, since you have been raised with Christ. But if not, then it is not. It's not your reality. And so Paul does not assume that every one of his readers are saved. But we see here that for those of us who have believed, our past is that we have been raised with Christ. And what that assumes and what we actually see in verse 3 is that you have died. We have died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ. I think this statement reaches back to chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And I'm not going to elaborate here. You can go back and listen to that sermon if you want to. In fact, we'll go back to verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our demands." The reality is, for those of us who have believed, and as baptism pictures, Christ's death has become our death, and Christ's life our life. We have, been, we have died with him, and we have been resurrected with him. Notice the passive voice here. We're going to look at a lot of language stuff in this text today, but it's important. The passive voice means it's not something we did. Notice he's not saying, you have raised yourself with Christ. No, somebody else has done the raising. You have been raised with Christ. And you have been made to die in verse uh, 3 is really the perspective here. This is not about what we have done. This is about what God in the past has done for us. When he called us to himself, when we trusted in Christ for for salvation and not in ourselves, he, he identified us with Christ so much through faith that Christ's death is our death and his life is our life. It is a participation in his death and resurrection through faith. If you have turned from your sin in repentance and trusted Christ in faith, then this is your present state. You are dead to sin. You are dead to worldly things. You are dead to worldly attempts to draw yourself near to God. Jesus has done all of that. But if you have not, then nothing else I say today matters. If you have not trusted Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, then nothing else I say today matters because nothing else pertains to you and your first and foremost task today is to repent and believe. They're the same thing. When one turns from sin, one turns towards God. 
And this is really a matter not so much of decision. We talk so much about people making decisions for Christ. What it really is, is it's a matter of affection. When we love Christ more than we love sin, we turn away from our sin and we turn towards Christ. Parents, this is your first charge to your children. To teach them of their need for a savior. Every time your child sins, do you see that as an opportunity for anger or an opportunity for gospel? That's a convicting question. Every opportunity for discipline in the lives of our children is gospel opportunities. Our job is to teach them that they are sinful and in need of a savior. Our past is that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, through Christ, caused us to die to the world, to die to our sin, and to have been raised with Christ. That brings us to the present. In the present, we are hidden with Christ. Notice verse 3 goes on to say, For you have died, and we've already established in verse 1 that we have been raised with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does it mean that our lives are hidden with Christ in God? Well, I believe Paul is implying three things here. Location, protection, and concealment. Location, protection, and concealment. First, let's look at location. Imagine you're traveling for business. No, really. Imagine you're traveling for business. Think of a city. Whatever city it is, doesn't matter. And you go there, and you do your job, and somebody at that office or that location comes to you and says, man, you've done an excellent job here. We would like you to stay, to live here, and to work here. You might respond this way. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time here, but I can't stay because I have a life back home in Walla Walla. What does it mean to have a life in Walla Walla? It means that that is the location of your life. That everything you hold dear, everything you've worked for, everything your life is oriented towards is there back home where your home, your family, your church, your friends, maybe even your business or work is. I think Paul to some degree means the, the same thing. That our life is in Christ that that is where our affection is to lie. That is what we are to be building and working towards. Christ is the location of our lives. And whether it's Walla Walla or Bangkok, your life can be located in Christ or not. It's an easy test uh, here. It's easy to figure out whether our life is located in Christ. Want to know if you have died with Christ and been raised with Christ? Then, then look to where you count your life to be. What do I mean by count your life to be? Is you, do you count your life primarily to be on earth? Or do you count your life to primarily be in heaven? Where do you want to be? Now if the answer is I feel torn... That's okay, Paul was too, right, in Philippians. That I'm, I'm torn between going to heaven and being with Christ, which is better for me, and staying on earth and being benefit to you, which is better for you. 
It's okay to be torn, but do you believe that your life would be better here on earth than in heaven? Or are your reasons for wanting to stay connected here primarily to do good for others? If your affections are for earthly things, you, need to, you maybe need to consider your faith. And again, biblically, faith is a matter of affection, not a matter of decision. It is loving Christ more than we love sin. If you want to know if you're saved, don't look to some decision you made at some point in time. Look to where your affections lie. First, our life is hidden in Christ in terms of location. Where Christ is, is where our home is. Second, protection. It is not us who keeps ourselves for eternity, but Christ who through the Spirit keeps us. Jude, uh, verse 1. Jude is only one chapter, so this is Jude 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. It is not us who keeps ourselves. It is the Spirit of God who keeps us. And so to say that our life is in Christ is not only to say that that's where our life is located, it is also to say that that's where our life is protected. It is Christ who holds on to us, not us who holds on to Christ. And thirdly, concealment. And I think there are two aspects to concealment. First, the world. The world cannot see our life in Christ. To the world, we just look like ordinary people. But for us, it's a little different. And we can't always know. But have you ever met somebody and and before you ever knew anything about them, something in you says, I think they're a believer. Sometimes we just get to see something different in people that the world can't see. The world can't see Christ. The world can't see our salvation. The world can't see our faith. And so there is a sense in which uh, to have our lives hidden in Christ is, is a hiddenness from the world that can't see it. But secondly, there's a hiddenness for us as well. A hiddenness that says we don't know what the future of life in Christ looks like. What what our eternal state looks like is a little bit shrouded in mystery in Scripture. Now, we know a lot about what heaven is going to be like. And if you think it's harps and clouds, read Randy Alcorn's book called Heaven. It's way better than that. But there's a lot we don't know. What is our life going to be like? Listen to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us, there's the concealment from the world. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. There's the concealment from us. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John speaks to our, the world's concealment. They can't see salvation in us apart from us telling them the gospel and living our lives out in a different way. And so in that sense, our life is hidden in Christ that the world can't see, but also there's a sense in which it's hidden from us and we don't understand what even our future life is going to look like. 
Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 and following, talks about this. He compares our bodies to a seed. And he says, like, if you, if you have a seed and you don't know what kind of seed it is, there's only one way to figure it out. Plant it in the ground and wait for it to grow. And whatever grows out of it, then you can see what kind of plant it is. Well, he, he uses that analogy to talk about our bodies. We don't know what the glorified state of our bodies is going to be like. That's been concealed from us. God hasn't revealed that to us yet. As John says, we don't know what it's going to be like. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, we don't know what it's going to be like. But eventually, physically, we're all going to die. We're going to, our spirits will go to heaven to be with God. And at some point in the future, when Christ returns, both the living and the dead will have their bodies resurrected to newness of life. That, that kernel, that seed of our body that has been buried in the ground will be raised up out of the ground and then we'll see what it will be like. Our lives are located with Christ, kept by Christ, and concealed in Christ. Listen to Constantine Campbell. I, thought, I think his summary of this section is very good. He says, A believer is united to Christ at the moment of coming to faith. Their union is established by the indwelling of the Spirit. The person united to Christ, therefore, enters into participation with Christ in his death, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. As a participant in Christ's death and resurrection, the believer dies to the world and is identified with the realm of Christ. As a member of the realm of Christ, the believer is incorporated into his body since union with Christ entails union with his members. And so we are with Christ in the past, having died with him and been raised with him. We are with Christ in the presence, uh, having our lives hidden with Christ. And then thirdly, in the future, we will be revealed with Christ. Whatever is unknown and unseen to us and to the world now will be revealed when Christ returns. Revelation chapter 19 is, is a great chapter on Christ returning in triumph and victory and a sword and, and all of this wonderful uh, imagery of the reality of Christ's return and reign and rule on earth. But Revelation 19, 14 is clear that when Jesus comes with him, he is bringing saints, he is bringing believers who he has clothed in righteousness with him. It is not just Christ who will return in glory. It is his church that will return with him. The world at some point will see our faith. And our bodies will be resurrected. And we will know what our future selves will be like at that point because according to 1 John 3, whatever that is, it will be like Jesus. Nothing will be concealed at that point. Nothing will be hidden from the world. And nothing will be hidden from us. There is one thing to note here, very importantly, in verse 4. Notice how it does not read. It does not say, when Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear in glory with him. It does not say you will appear in glory with him. It says when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's his glory. It's, it's not us that are the glorious ones returning. 
It is Christ who is the glorious one who is returning. And oh, this is good news. This is such good news. In our sinful state, we want to think our own glory is the best news. But the reality is, it is Christ's glory that is the best news. Now again, imagine. Imagine going on a trip somewhere. And and upon, you know, some city. Imagine going to, it doesn't matter. But imagine going with a king and a queen. Imagine before he died, the king and queen or prince and queen of England invite you to England. And you go to Buckingham Palace. And from there, you get on a plane and you travel with them to some other city. And upon arrival, you exit the plane with them and you exit with them in pomp and circumstance and excitement and ceremony. Now imagine going to that same city with me. We get off the plane. No one cares. You're like, I'm here with Logan. And they're like, I don't even speak the language. (laughs) When Paul tells us that we appear with Christ in his glory, this is not a diminishment of the joy of that day. It is a maximizing of the joy of that day. Because the glory of Christ in which we will appear with him far exceeds any self-perceived glory that you and I could have. And so this is great news that we appear with him in his glory. In the past, we died to sin and to the world and were resurrected to newness of life. In the present, our life is hidden with Christ in God. And in the future, it will all be revealed in glory as the fullness of our life will appear with Christ in his glory. But what is the response? How do we respond to all of this? Well, that's where we see these two imperatives in verse 1 and 2. And everything I've told you up to this point is the reason for these imperatives. And that's signaled to us in verse 3 with the word for. Paul gives us two commands. And then he says in in verse 3, For you have died with Christ, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the reason. That's That's the reason for which Paul gives us these two imperatives that we are supposed to live in. And that is that we are to pursue heavenly things, and we are to ponder heavenly thoughts. We are to pursue heavenly things and ponder heavenly thoughts. Look with me again at verse 1b and 2. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. There's the two imperative. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on on the things that are above. J.B. Lightfoot said it well. He said, you must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. 
These two present tense imperatives tell us that, that that's always to be the state of our lives. We're always to be in the state of seeking heaven and always to be in the state of thinking about heaven. Sadly, if you brought in NIV today, your verse, verse one says to set your hearts and then says set your minds. And that's unfortunate. The word heart does not occur anywhere in the Greek. It's an, they've added words to try and uh, convey meaning there. And so they've changed this word that says, seek the things that are above, to set your hearts on the things that are above. And why am I going to pick on that today? Because there's a great danger in changing the, the language there to set your hearts from seek. Uh, there's a danger in over-emotionalizing this. Paul isn't talking about feeling strongly about heaven. He's not talking about an overly emotional Christianity that's just uh, joyfully uh, desiring of heaven all the time, though that would not be wrong. No, what he is talking about here is an active pursuit of heaven, both in thought and in deed. In other words, we are far from home and our lives are to be obsessed with getting back to where home is. Return to imagining to that, you're in that city where you went for business, your family and your friends and your life is here and something globally goes wrong and planes can't fly, trains can't train, I don't know, what do trains do? And, and you've got to get home. You're going to do whatever it takes to pursue getting home to your family. And Paul is not talking about us sitting in a far-off city feeling good about where our families are at home. And he says, your life is hidden with Christ. It's where it is. But right now, you're here. And all of your thoughts and all of your life should be oriented towards getting home. Some may object, though. Logan, how, how can a life that is so focused on heaven be any earthly good? If all of my thoughts and all of my pursuits are towards heavenly things, how can I do any good in this world? Well, uh, you know what? The reality is a compass only points one direction. A weather vane, it blows wherever the wind blows. But a compass points one direction. And because it points one direction, you can navigate the entire globe. When our lives point one direction, when, when our thoughts are towards heaven and our lives are oriented towards heaven, we can navigate this life that we are in now. We can find our way home and we can do good to people while we're here. And so let me just ask you a few diagnostic and maybe prying questions as we close this morning. We think about a life oriented towards and pointing towards heaven. Where does your checkbook point? Where does your retirement portfolio point? Neither of those things are bad, but they might tell us decisively whether our lives are oriented towards eternal things or towards worldly things. What direction does your time point? Where would your coworkers say that you, your life points? 
What about your kids? Would your kids say that your life points directly at them, their education, their sporting events? Or would they say that your life points towards home? When the weather is nice on a Sunday morning and you did not plan on being on vacation, where will your location on a Sunday morning point? By all means, take a vacation, rest, go out and do activities. But why can't Trinity keep an adult Bible class going during the summer? Where do you, what do your coworkers see you're pursuing? What does your family see you pursuing? Is your compass pointed north? Or is it a little off? Anybody who's spent any time navigating anything knows that a compass that does not point north will not get you anywhere but lost. Where does your compass point? Lord, may our lives and our thoughts and our homes and our families and our time and our work and our rest and all of what we do be oriented towards you. Lord, you have raised us with Christ. You have hidden our life in him and you will bring us safely home and you will reveal us with him in his glory and all that we do not know right now will be seen someday. Lord, may our lives be oriented towards all of that because you are good and you are worthy and you are deserving of complete and total allegiance and affection. Lord, captivate our hearts and minds and lives for your glory, for our good, for the good of our children and our grandchildren and our coworkers and our neighbors. May our, may our lives point homeward and our thoughts point homeward for your glory. Amen. Thank you.